I am your host, Olga Peters, and if you are familiar with this show, you know that we talk about how things in Montpelier shake out for the rest of us, but for this summer, we have a little twist. We actually want to talk about what Vermont can learn from the rest of the world, because this summer, we are going to do our utmost to talk to experts from outside Vermont about different issues that Vermont is struggling with to see what we can learn and uh, discover and maybe see these issues and even ourselves in a new light. On that note, I would like to welcome to the show regular contributor and representative Emily Kornheiser from Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Good morning, Olga. And thank you, Julia Brothers, who is joining us from the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs, where she is the Senior Advisor for Election and Political Process. Thank you, Julia, for joining us today to talk about all things voting. Thank you for having me. Good morning, both. For folks who don't know about um, NDI, I know it as a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that works to support and strengthen democratic institutions and the democratic process, both in the U.S. and worldwide. Um, What do you think is key around voting and democratic institutions with the work you're doing right now that people might want to understand? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that one thing that's important to always remember is that elections are a very important part of democracy, but they're process, right? And they are not the only democratic process we need to care about. And in fact, elections are really shaped a lot by other democratic institutions sort of working and functioning the way that they should. Elections are not just a day. They are a very, very, very long process. And so when we talk about elections and we talk about electoral integrity, it's not just about did the ballots get there on time and, you know, what, was everything well organized? Um, did the polling stations open when they were supposed to? Um, it's much, much bigger than that. It's about, you know, does everybody have access to the process? Does everybody have the information that they need to effectively participate? Are, you know, are is the registration process inclusive? Is it as comprehensive as it can be? Is, is the, you know, is the, are the campaigns conducting themselves in an ethical manner? Is there a level playing field for for actors that are are competing in elections? And um, is the legal framework itself inclusive and does it have, does it build an accountability for institutions? So when we're thinking about electoral integrity, we really need to think about it as a much much broader issue um, about, um, about participation, about transparency, um, about inclusivity and and about accountability. Um, you know, that's one of the things that elections give us, right? It's it's one of the ways that it makes democracy work is that it um, creates a system where we can hold our our political representatives accountable. Um, and so, making sure that um, you know, even when it comes to electoral complaints and dispute resolution, um, that those processes are are accessible and inclusive and transparent. So I think, you know, whatever, again, just kind of thinking about whenever we're talking about elections and when we're talking about voting, that we're thinking of this as as a a pretty broad process. And there are a lot of things that 
Um, people may not always necessarily link with elections um, that that we probably should when we're talking about electoral integrity. Um, so, you know, things like political finance, things like um, even the information environment itself. Um, this is something that we're seeing not not just in the United States, but worldwide that the sort of what is the pre-election information environment, mm-hmm. you know, and and do people have accurate information? Are people being um, deceived or manipulated in, in any way and, and ensuring that really that voters are able to to make informed choices um, on Election Day, even not just like who you want to vote for, but even if you are planning on participating in the process at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, these are these are kind of broad considerations that I think um, we always need to, to think about when we're thinking not just in terms of more of the policy and the legal framework side of things, but just broadly having having, you know, conducive environments to to a credible and transparent process. I appreciate that focus on the broad. You know, Vermont has done a pretty incredible job on the sort of the mechanics of voting side. We um, have barely any wait times at the polls. You can vote very far in advance. We are now, we just adopted um, mail-out ballots, universal mail-out ballots. We have ballot curing now. Mm -hmm. There's folks who are incarcerated can vote. Folks who are not incarcerated anymore, but have felonies records can vote. We really, um, we have automatic voter registration on our Department of Motor Vehicles, which used to be tied into ICE, but is not anymore. You know, we've... (laughs) We've done some really fantastic work and our secretary of state has really been in front of these issues, but we very, very rarely have competitive elections Mm -hmm. for any of our local offices. Mm -hmm. Um, We have no accountability in our campaign finance system. And it's almost by sort of sheer luck of our tininess that nothing has gone profoundly awry because of sort of that side of it. You know, our local media is so profoundly underfunded that elections are barely covered. And mostly just most folks don't have the space or time to pay any attention to any of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what I'm always thinking about, like the information vacuum and the motivation vacuum and sort of what it looks like for folks Local elections in particular are, are really hard. And I think we're sort of seeing this, you know, there's been a, there is a, a challenge with, you know, even local media, right, being able to be funded, being able to, to stay open and do, you know, and do the work that they do, which is providing really critical information about what's happening at state houses. I mean, these are all things that just go away, right, if, if your state and local media goes away. Um, and then you don't have watchdogs who can be sort of creating, again, creating that accountability. In, you know, part of this is also the local ele- elections thing. Um, it's quite alarming how low voter turnout tends to be for, for, for local elections. And I think, you know, one thing that we're obviously seeing throughout the U.S. now is, is you know, state legislatures getting quite involved Right. And um, the, and the voting rights debate and, you know, election reform, you know, whether it's maybe more restrictive or more open, you know, people really need to understand how important state legislatures are and the role that they play in their lives. Um, and it, it is still pretty interesting. And in a lot of states, I mean, there are some states where it's like 10 percent voter turnout for for state elections. And some of that, I think, has to do with how they're timed whether they coincide with with national elections or not. 
Um, again, yeah, I mean, the voter education that goes around that and the information environment around that is incredibly important um, because these are these are actually the, the seats of power that really, truly matter, especially when it comes to elections and voting rights, because, um, you know, in the United States, elections are run at the state level. And the, you know, currently we have very few national election laws. They're obviously the the Senate is currently sitting on a, you know, a pretty big, ambitious national election reform bill. But that would be a really, really big deal because mm-hmm. simply just do not have a national legal framework for that. And I mean, constitutionally, you know, m- most of the election you know, management and sort of rules of the game all fall to the states. And so I can't impress upon people enough about <laughs> voting in local, local and state elections. I'm curious, Julia, we have, as a society, I think we've put a lot of attention on on voting in recent years, especially with the last administration. But for you, what are some of the the longer term concerns that have been transcending, regardless of who's president, regardless of who's governor, what have been the long concerns for you? I will say that there have been, as much as I think there is a lot of concern right now about sort of recent kind of partisan influence on uh, election legal frameworks and, you know, a a number of these sort of new voter suppression laws that have been coming out of Georgia and now Texas. Generally, we actually have been trending in a better direction. There are a lot of challenges that, that come into play when you don't when you have such a decentralized system, you know, as as the U.S. does. And part of that can be very frustrating um, because it it makes it hard to sort of hold, you know, hold states to certain minimum standards. And, you know, and that can sort of open open things up to abuse by bad actors. And and then the fact that you kind of can so easily sort of change election rules um, at a state or local level. But that also means that um, I think, you know, in terms of in terms of risks, the risks is a little more distributed when it comes to things that we're thinking about external threats. Hmm. Um, but also, it has allowed a lot of states to sort of innovate. And, you know, we wouldn't even be talking about automatic voter registration right now if it hadn't been for, you know, Oregon and, you know, Washington and some of these states that really start to innovate that and try it out. And, you know, we have seen a lot of these kinds of improvements. You know, there are more states that are adopting uh, automatic voter registration. Most states now you can register to vote online without having to like print or scan or, you know, you know, do anything <laughs> at all, um, which wasn't the case. I mean, that wasn't the mm-hmm. case then five years ago or six years ago. You know, a lot of states have been introducing things like pre-registration for 16-year-olds. There's been, uh, you know, we're seeing more restoration of felon voting rights across states. And so, you know, you do see these, much more states are actually, you know, moving from having machine-based voting without paper trails to either having voter-verified paper trails or, you know, kind of just using paper-based, you know, vote marking. And, you know, these are all generally pretty, pretty good trends. There are these sort of, again, these kind of like long-term issues, some of which like might eventually be solved, but some I think are really just kind of baked inherently into like the U.S. system. You know, so things like, again, not having a lot of standardization across the board is, is a problem. You know, it's, it's a less of a problem when you're talking about state and local elections, but when we're talking about voting for national office um, or our representatives in Congress, 
that actually, you know, represent us all, like there, there really maybe should be a little more standardization. Can you help explain sort of what the implications of not having standardization look like for equal representation? You know, we want the opportunity for states to innovate and do what works for those states. Um, you know, for instance, in North Dakota, they don't even have voter registration. There's no, there's no voter registry. And it's just, it's a real small state. There's not a lot of people there. They were sort of like, you know what, we just kind of know everyone. So why would, and, and, you know, that, that works for them. And, and that's great. That would probably, you know, probably not work in some other states. And so there's, again, there's, there's these spaces where we, we do want to make sure that the states do have the ability to be a little flexible, but the fact is, you know, for president or for Senate, I mean, everybody in the United States is like voting very differently than their neighbor. That's, that can be a problem because of the fact that in, in some places there might be more restrictive ways of voting, or there might be um, less transparency in how votes are tabulated, or there might be transparency in how votes are cured or how provisional ballots are being addressed. And I think that's where you have a situation where you might have, you know, much more populations that are being overrepresented and, and, you know, your final turnout and populations that are being underrepresented. And it just kind of creates this, this unevenness across the board. And and some of it is also just a voter confusion issue, right? It is very weird. And and, then some, some states have done a much better job now of being a bit more centralized, at least within the state. But I mean, in some places it's, the way you vote in one county is a very di- is very different than the way you mm-hmm. vote in another county, and that's very confusing. Here in Vermont, um, yeah. early voting can be a, quite a patchwork from town to town, depending yeah. on the town clerk's sort of capacity to open their office or not open their office. And that's something that we were looking to get much more centralized by talking about drop boxes in something that wasn't really just up to each individual clerk to figure out exactly. was something that was centralized. Sure. And when we were talking about ballot curing. The original language in the legislation was focused on the clerk sort of getting in touch with the person who had the damaged, what's the, there's a technical term, it's not damaged ballot, but spoiled spoiled ballot. And that's a place where, you know, as you said, everyone knows everyone in North Dakota. In the smaller towns, the town clerk probably knows everyone who lives in the town and can easily get in touch with them. In larger towns, like where I live, the town clerk does not know every single person in the entire town. And that's not part of the culture here. Right. And so if the ballots were going to be fixed much more easily in those smaller towns and in the larger towns, we're going to wind up with a real imbalance and who's able to vote. Exactly. How did the state remind people how the state kind of resolved that? Town clerks are obligated to essentially sort of record it and send out sort of an automated message through the central secretary of state's voting site, not to individually get in touch with each voter based on the town clerk's personal knowledge of how to find that person, which is what sort of the original legislation implied. And that's, I mean, that's something, and again, I think this is another place where there has been a very good trend to sort of be a little more efficient, standardize things a little bit more, at least at this at the state level. I mean, because again, that's how that's how voter registration used to operate in a lot of places, right? Mm-hmm. You could go to your county clerk's office, or you had to go to your, your your town clerk's office, and even from county to county, that might vary, right? Like the, the hours of that the office is open might vary, the all that kinds of stuff. And and now having you know these systems that there's still, you know, the 
the role of those clerks is still very important. And they're still playing that role of validating things and looking at things and, 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 and kind of playing that, that administrative role, but it's all being centralized in one place. And as a voter, you know, just like voters don't actually think this way, right? Like a, like voters, they don't know who their County clerk really is. In most cases, they don't know that that's like, and a, a sort of administrative role. They don't, honestly, most voters don't even know that it's like the secretary of state that runs their elections. Like these are all things that that your kind of average citizen doesn't really know. And so they don't even know to go to these sorts of places for information. And so a lot of this is also like, how do we get information to people where they actually look for it? And this is again, what kind of standardization is a little more helpful because you know, especially like ahead of the the 2020 elections, I mean, you had so many people going on to Google being like, how does mail-in voting work? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, because I don't want to, I don't want to go to the polls because it's, we're in the middle of an international pandemic. How does mail-in voting work? And the problem is it depends, right? It depends on where you are. It depends on their, you know, the requirements of your state. And, and, you know, you kind of go to these more centralized sources of, you know, the internet, you go to Google, you go to Facebook, you go to these places where you, you think you can get the right information. And unless, you know, there's, I mean, fortunately with Facebook and with Google now, they've done a pretty good job of coordinating with, with state election officials on trying to get the right information out, like depending on like where your IP address is, like, I'm going to give you, you know, the right information from that state. You know, these are all things we need to think about with these systems, like these administrative systems that make sense to us, but for a voter, you know, I mean, and that's another reason why automatic voter registration makes a lot of sense because again, as voters, you sort of think that when you're, when you're interacting with government, that everybody's talking to each other, <laughs> which they're not at all. Right. Like <laughs> I do. Why, why I just went to the DMV. Why do I have to also do this separate thing, you know, with the board of election, like it should all, you know, if you're interacting with the government, it should kind of all work together. I do very much appreciate that anyone would assume that government right. works properly. <laughs> I mean, cause I want it to. And so I appreciate that there are people out there just sort of like holding that vision for me. Um, <laughs> But, you know, what you said, so many of folks in Vermont get most of their news from national sources. And so the things that folks get concerned about because they hear are national issues or issues even one state over, I'll have people reach out to me. You have to fix this. This is a crisis. And I'm like, actually, Vermont has never had a problem with that. Or we fixed it 10 years ago or whatever. (laughs) Because of that. Because of that, when I'm like, no, no, calm down, it's okay. It means that people either get deeply involved in issues in other states, or they don't see what the challenges are here that they mm-hmm. might need to fix mm-hmm. or get excited about. Mm-hmm. I was on a call with one of your colleagues a couple of weeks ago um, to talk about sort of what we can learn inter- from the international world to um, apply to national level electoral reform. And one thing that she reflected on is that sort of best practice and international issues on this is being led by the folks who are sort of, you know, living their lives and in the communities. And so I wonder, what does that look like? Like, what does electoral reform that's led by the voters look like? I mean, one thing that I sort of immediately hear when you were talking that led me to this question is the idea of you know, if you're being led by the people who are voting, you understand that like efficiency and clarity of information are necessary. Right. Mm -hmm. But what, what else do we learn from that? Yeah. I mean, 
That's a very good point. And again, I mean, you know, again, one of the, the differences here that is a little bit more of a challenge in the U.S. is, you know, we have so many different targets when it comes to election reform, right? There's your state legislatures that you need to work with. There's, you know, some, you know, there, there is lobbying Congress, you know, obviously if there, if there are you know, kind of pieces of national legislation that can come up, there's, quite frankly, there's lobbying the social media companies that um, mm-hmm. have, you know, obviously have a, a major influence on electoral related information. There's, you know, talking about, you know, media and the role of the media and electoral information. But, you know, and um, elsewhere, most places have a central election commission. And, you know, it's, it's and, you know, one, one lawmaking body, right, that has sort of influence on, on the legal framework. But yeah, we see really, in those cases, I mean, you can see really kind of broad-based advocacy efforts um, that usually include a lot of different sectors of society. So, you know, you're sort of, you're kind of good governance and electoral watchdogs, you know, so citizen election observers, um, political monitors, you know, these these kinds of anti-corruption groups, as well as um, law societies and, you know, these kinds of actors that can all work together you know, usually it isn't a hyper-partisan kind of movement. I mean, you obviously have to find your champions, um, you know, in, in, in whatever legislature you're working with. Um, but, you know, I think we know that generally election reform is really best when it, it, it doesn't, you know, look like or sound like a hyper-partisan mm-hmm. um, approach. One thing, again, and this is sort of where I think a lot of the reform that we've seen in the U.S., again, where we're kind of seeing the trends go in the right way, I think has actually been a result of a lot of public pressure. Um, You know, we've seen, we've seen an overwhelming support for independent redistricting commissions, right? When it's something that's been put on referendum. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've seen support for uh, felony voting rights when it's been put on referendum. We've, you know, I think, I think a lot of the the sort of movements about um, expanding early voting and expanding voting by mail has been a result of public pressure. I would also say it is of election officials also sort of advocating for simplifying processes. Um, you know, in most cases, these kinds of changes do make election officials' lives um, a little bit easier. And they do know, I mean, these are people who do see flaws in the process and they do see where v- voters might be lost in some places. And so, you know, I do think part of this is also sort of trusting election officials a little bit and hearing, you know, their experiences and what they think or sort of technical tweaks and things like that, that we can do to improve the process, which I, I do think is, is, you know, we kind of, we hear in other countries uh, as well. I, I think that that's something where, particularly in the States now where we are starting to see a lot more restrictive voting legislation come out, you know, this is not coming from election officials at all, right? This is very much coming from political actors. Um, and I think that that's kind of a, a, a bit of a difference. The other thing, I mean, I think also I kind of mentioned um, in other countries, like one thing that we see in a lot of other countries that we don't see here in the U.S. is the role that kind of independent, I mean, we call them like election monitors. So like these, like we have a lot of their civil society organizations all around the country, all around the world that 
you know, deploy trained observers to monitor, you know, the pre-election and election day process. And they kind of come, come out with their own sort of assessments about the quality of the process, the credibility of the process, which, you know, in some cases can very much highlight when there are problems and there's fraud and there are challenges to voting rights. And in some places can help, you know, verify when an election went quite well. And when voters should have confidence in the process and they should have confidence in the results. And I think that that's something that could serve the U.S. a bit pretty well. Mm -hmm. Uh, See some efforts like this, like the League of Women Voters does a little bit of this. The NAACP sometimes does some of this. Most of the election monitoring that I'm aware of in the U.S. is very, very partisan. Exactly. So each candidate sends their election monitors (laughs) to watch, but they're just looking out for their candidates. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. By far and away, the most you know, common sort of election observation that you see in the U.S. is is party is partisan is party poll watching. Mm -hmm. Right. You're right. And, And like and that is important. Don't get me wrong. Like that that absolutely serves a role. Those candidates that have the right to send their observers to protect their interests and, you know, def- defend the rights of their supporters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you end up not having at the end of the day is sort of, if you're somebody who, let's say, does not trust public institutions, which unfortunately we're seeing that increase in the U.S., right, this sort of distrust of government, distrust of public institutions, then having a separate independent voice that can also sort of, you know, reflect what happened in an accurate and credible way can be helpful and can give, you know, citizens information that they, you know, that they may not normally have. So that's, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why that's a challenge in the U.S. Again, because of we're because we're so decentralized, you know, would you know, so probably see more like state-based efforts. But you know, that I think we're seeing now, that's something that could really have a have an impact potentially. Thank you, Julia. Unfortunately, we're out of time for this first half, so we're going to take a quick break here on the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro to hear from some of our underwriters, and we will return in a moment, so stay tuned. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on iTunes at our Facebook page at our website, montpelierhappyhour.captivate.fm and Emily's YouTube channel. And Emily, what do we need to remind our lovely listeners? The views and opinions expressed on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests and not any of the stations or platforms that they're played on and not any of the organizations that the host or the guests might work for or with in any other capacity. Thank you, darling. I'm really making that explanation longer and longer. Diving in. This is what opinion means, people. We are all allowed to have them. If you are just joining us, I am speaking, of course, with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, as well as Julia Brothers from the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs. And we are talking about the electoral process and voting and what it means in a democratic society. 
I would love in the second half for us to to sort of look at this issue from different through different lenses. And the first one I'd like to start with is just we'll start local and move out. Julia, I'd love to hear from you in this world of of elections and voting rights. How does Vermont fit in? What do you see as someone who's outside Vermont looking at Vermont? How is it doing? That's a great question. I mean, in my opinion, Vermont is doing very well. Uh, You know, again, I I think that there are certain, I wouldn't say core indicators, but there are definitely kinds of technical reforms that you can introduce into your, your voting and electoral process that... We, we sort of, we know increases participation and we know makes election administration more efficient. You know, things like, again, like automatic voter registration, online voter registration, um, you know, the availability of same day registration, the, all these kinds of factors that can really sort of increase participation. So I, I think these are places where, um, where Vermont has, is, is sort of, in kind of the leads of the states that are are, are looking at these and, and thinking about ways to expand the electorate and 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 make voting easier. Can I just interrupt you for one second? Um, I'm really, really proud of the work we've done on this. Mm-hmm. And I think we've done a lot of really good work on it, even in the last two years. But I think this is one of the places where Vermont's profound whiteness um, mm-hmm. makes some of these reforms historically easier for us. So mm-hmm. in the same way that we have one of the highest home ownership rates in the country, and we're always very proud of ourselves for that, I think the fact that these conversations were often white people talking to white people about white people made the issue of election reform and open elections a lot less divisive mm-hmm. um, because there were fewer scapegoats to point at um, in terms of sort of the malignant actors or whatever it is. And so this is one place that I'm really, really proud of the work that we do, but I want to sort of own that one of the reasons we've been able to do it is because of. um, Hmm. This is something that we've seen in other states as well is Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, more homogenous places have had, have been able to have even some that you wouldn't, suspect, you know, places like West Virginia and Utah, mm-hmm. like that they have like fairly progressive, you know, voting laws. And I'm not going to speculate, but obviously it's a little bit easier when it's, oh, we're just, we're just expanding to vote for us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that, I do think that that is something that, that we have seen in, in other places as well. There's always room for improvement. Um, again, these and there are these like the less tangible issues, right? It's one thing when we're like, oh, we know we can make some tweaks to the process, some differences to how we do administration or h- how this website works, or you know, again, issues about how are voters getting their information and what does that look like. You know, I think that that's that's an area we always need to be thinking more about. I mean, I think COVID nineteen sort of also showed a lot of states, you know, sort of like oh, did, did we even have contingency plans for this? Like in the future, you know, if we have more shocks like this, like are our systems um, able to handle them and how do we pivot? Kind of planning ahead for that. There are still, you know, a lot of challenges related to, you know, campaign finance that, you know, states can only do so much about. Issues related to, you know, to ethics, to redistricting reform, you know, that we that that still have a have a big impact on the credibility of the of the process. So but, you know, I would say 
you know, generally Vermont, you're on the right path. (laughs) And one sort of example of that sort of in the margins of the nuance there is that, you know, our campaign finance laws are actually pretty decent in terms of what we need to file, the minimum donations we can get from an individual, um, how we need to, you know, declare things, but they're absolutely not enforceable at all. Mm -hmm. The secretary of state Mm -hmm. can't enforce them. No one can enforce them. It's just like part of some magical piece of sort of the voters were hold legislators accountable, which is not always true. And so many, many legislators and candidates don't ever do their financial disclosures or filings Mm -hmm. um, or leave vast amounts of information out of them. And there's no system for us to do anything about that whatsoever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just one example. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sort of where also I think the, the kind of at least sort of state centralization piece can also be helpful is with this issue of like open election data right? How much information is really available to citizens. And this is somewhere where, uh, and this is not just Vermont, it's pretty common throughout New England, the kind of town clerk based system. It does mean that there, you know, for a long time, there was a lot of, you know, sort of public data that is technically available. You know, you, you can request it and get it, but you would have to go from like, I have to go from town to town, to town, to town, to get, an aggregated data set of that. And that's not actually user-friendly. That's not actually really transparent, right? And so I think always thinking about ways that states can make their electoral data a lot more available and user-friendly to people is is really important. And part of that means, you know, usually kind of centralizing that data and and, in some way um, available. So let's pull out a little bit from Vermont. And I know, Emily, in your past life, you worked internationally, mm-hmm. uh, and and I know some of um, what the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs does is also looking at things internationally. So let's let's put an international lens on this, um, Emily. How would you approach that question? So I actually think you know I worked with NDI even directly in Afghanistan a little bit with uh, municipal government in Kabul, but I. What I always appreciated working internationally was um, how I could sort of see America through the eyes of the rest of the world. I had that opportunity. And it also helped me see the rest of the world through their own eyes. Because often the stories that we tell ourselves in our news and the level of accountability we hold ourselves to is so very different from how we describe the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think when internet news became a little more available and we got to read about America through say Al Jazeera, um, that was a really profound shift, I think, in a lot of people's perceptions of the world. And so when I, there's someone at my door. Do you want to go answer your door? Nope. I just talking. had to say it out loud because that's one of those funny things about doing these things. Um, and so when I when I think about these questions and what it sort of means for democracy, you know, I think we often describe other countries' voting processes as these like holes of corruption or um, corporate actors controlling all of it, and it, Putting that exact same lens on the U.S. is um, inconceivable for so many of us. And so, one, I'd be really help 
really um, appreciate a chance to sort of hear that lens from you, Julia, about how people view, especially the last few years of American electoral politics. But also for me, it helps me bring a lot of compassion to how I view the rest of the world who are going through these exact same human processes um, yep. in their own elections. Yeah, no, like that's Cuba true. or Haiti, yeah. <laughs> just to name a few in the headlines. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of aspects of the U.S. electoral system that we would absolutely, you know, sort of ding other other countries for, right? Like, um, and when we say ding, we mean like, unless you fix this, you can't have any money or resources from us. I mean, it's not usually that. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it would be that severe. Okay. Um, these these kinds of issues, but certainly they would be part of a critical analysis, right? And if we were if we were international election observers, it's something that you would you would write in your statement as like this should be reformed. As you've sort of noted, like campaign finance is a big one. You know the the amount of you know dark money that influences um, the U.S political debate is, you know, is wild. And, um, you know, it's only become less transparent. It's uh, only gotten, it's getting worse. It's not better. Our enforcement mechanisms are weaker. They're not stronger. So this is something that, you know, you would say that's a negative trend, right? In terms <laughs> of political financial influence. One thing that's a kind of a quirk of the U.S. system that I think we don't dissect enough that is very unusual to an international onlooker is the fact that half of our chief election officials, you know, secretaries of state are partisans, right? I mean, they run as partisans, like they are, they are a member of a party, they can be on campaign committees, they can, you know, they are, they are partisans. And that is very much not done in, in most of the rest of the world. You have independent nonpartisan actors are, you know, sort of make up your election commission. Uh, Can I ask you a question about that? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in Vermont, we have our secretary of state is elected and like very um, deeply involved in democratic party politics um, and, you know, doing a great job. But so if it is independent, who actually picks them? Because when I think about the folks who are sort of in on independent commissions in Vermont or, um, bureaucrats, they're selected by like the most deeply partisan person who's head of the government here or governor. And so that's something I'm like, always read, like, what does it actually even mean to be independent if the person above you is appointed? Yeah. I mean, so the, the, the point, so a lot of places there does need to be sort of clear criteria, right. About who, like, I mean, so legitimately like you actually have to be independent. Like you need to have not ever run for mock for office. Like you need to, you know, in some places it's like you need to, you need to not even be a member of a political party. And you need to actually show that you have the technical experience for this job. Right. So things like where you kind of bake in technocratic right qualifications into into the body but then i mean you're right like that it still has to go you know at some point somebody has to pick them right and so it's either the legislature or it's the president or prime minister and then they have to get a have to get approved by the legislature so there's you know there's there's some kind of checks and balances involved but it's it's impossible to always necessarily be able to say that people are truly independent but the body mm -hmm. itself is supposed to be right and like okay. 
And of course, you and, it, and it's supposed to be viewed as independent. And in a lot of places, they have done a very good job of creating trust with this with, with an election commission. There are a few places in the U.S. So in Wisconsin, they used to actually have a kind of a model like this. Um, they had a board of elections that was completely nonpartisan. Um, you know, they were all sort of kind of technocrat, academic, you know, kind of people who had sort of worked in election the election administration space. And that model worked really well. The the Wisconsin legislature about maybe eight years ago or so decided that they wanted to move to a more partisan model. Again, this was moved by the legislature, not by election officials. You know, I think there was a political motive behind that. You know, so it can be done in the U.S. You know, so I think that that's something that just like, and again, I'm not saying that it doesn't necessarily work in the U.S. I mean, I think mm-hmm. we've seen that there are issues with it and that that even if there's not real partisanship inject, injected into the process or real threats that secretaries of states and their, their sort of political affiliations are injecting into the process, there's certainly perceived ones. Absolutely. Just as damaging, right? You know, I think that that's something that is just a bizarre, a bizarre thing that we do that we don't have to do and we could change <laughs> if we want. <laughs> and, and then, I mean, I think that there is a lot to be said about, you know, the increased violent political rhetoric that we've been seeing, you know, from actual elected officials and actual, you know, political candidates, things like violence and and intimidation, you know, I wouldn't have said is necessarily a major consideration in our elections, you know, a decade or two ago. I mean, certainly for some communities, it absolutely always has been. But it's something even more now that, you know, any election observer who saw the 2020 elections would be all over that. You know, I mean, obviously what happened in the post-election period, which is, again, something that um, we do consider a part of the electoral process. So I, I think that there are there are plenty of these kind of, you know, eyebrow raising issues that that the U.S. just systematically kind of that the U.S. has. And, and some some things are getting worse and not better. I do think that generally. I think that there is still this this hope of American democracy abroad. Um, And I think people still do look at the U.S. as a model. But just like we are having challenges to some of our democratic institutions now and seeing, you know, what I would consider democratic backsliding in the U.S. and, 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 you know, kind of increased preference for authoritarianism, that's happening all over the world. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that in a number of different places. And so I think, you know, one thing that, you know, when I'm working with, with, with folks abroad, I mean, the thing is we're all democratic activists here, right? We all, we all want functioning democracies and we're kind of all, we're all together on this and we're all facing very similar challenges to be, I mean, there's, again, there's these like unique issues to the, to the U S system, but when it comes to this sort of broader, a liberalist anti-democratic institutions and, you know, anti-democratic governments, these, these kinds of movements, um, you know, this is something that we're seeing very similar playbooks around the world, you know, the, the, the role that disinformation plays in undermining confidence and in democratic institutions is something that we're seeing everywhere. And I think that it's, it's kind of incumbent on all of us to, in, you know, in this respect to really see ourselves as, as democratic citizens of the world who are trying to maintain our, the will of the people and, you know, these sort of means of resolving the struggle for power in a nonviolent way. 
Uh, we have just over five minutes. Just just giving you a, a time check. So sorry, Emily. Mm -hmm. No, thanks. What's something that we can do at the state level or the local level or even as individuals around the disinformation? That's a good, I mean, that's a good question. And, you know, one thing that we've seen is that, so there are, there are sort of right and there's kind of right and wrong ways of responding to disinformation. Um, you know, unfortunately for a long time, you know, we thought that, you know, kind of just doing like a quick fact checking was like the right way to do this. And, and I think that that still is the way that that still is true, but we need to be careful about not drawing attention to the bad narrative, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because what ends up happening is that kind of just ends up amplifying and amplifying it instead. So one thing that, I, I mean, it's not like, you just kind of have to overwhelm the, overwhelm the system with truth. That's sort of, it's really hard to change someone's mind after they've already been exposed to, you know, a, a disinformation narrative. And so all you can do is sort of kind of hope that that doesn't happen. Right. And that they're exposed to the truth first, you know, and unfortunately our sort of our truth tools, like they just like, they're not as strong and they don't get as much reach as these, as the disinformation narratives. And part of that is because they're, they're not shocking and they don't get this kind of like rage engagement, right. On social media and other places, there's a lot of truth that totally gets rage engagement. That's true. Right? <laughs> and so a lot of so put it. put that out there, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> that's really exciting, actually, the idea of just sort of, exactly that, exactly that phrase you used, overwhelming the system with I truth. Love it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we, did, and like, and yeah, we just have to find a better way of doing that. But I also think there is, there is something to, again, I think we need to hold we need to hold actors more accountable who are generating this information. I mean, right now it's like, why wouldn't you do it? Because there's, there are no, there's no disincentives right now. Right. And we know that disinformation works and, you know, as a political candidate or a political operative, you know, it's like, why, why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I use this tool to my advantage? And so I think we do need to have some systems in place, you know, that kind of help create a little more accountability around actors who are, you know, deliberately generating and amplifying um, disinformation that's, you know, that's harmful to our, to our democracy. And sometimes I think that's, you know, maybe it's like just citizens that have to kind of create that accountability. Um, you know, obviously we don't want any kind of freedom of expression regulations or, or anything like that. And so it, 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 it does involve being a little bit creative. Like, are there campaign codes of conduct that we can start enforcing? Are there, again, can the, the platforms be better actors when it comes to creating disincentives for, for generating disinformation online? Mm -hmm. um, and then we have the challenge of traditional media as well. And how do you, how do you hold those actors responsible? Um, are those actors accountable at least? Um, so, and I think in some way, this is also where like political finance transparency also kind of plays a role too. Like it's, it's really good to know, like one of the reasons why, you know, disinformation is sort of proliferating the way that it does is because it can do so more behind when it's opaque, right? And you have, there's, mm -hmm. you, you kind of have shadowy political actors. We don't know who's funding certain media programs. We don't know who is behind coordinated behavior on, on social media platforms. And so kind of trying to bring more of that to light and kind of always pushing for more transparency around like, is anybody financially benefiting from this? 
um, who's politically benefiting from this and kind of keeping those questions in mind. Thanks. Thank you. We are almost out of time. So I'd love, Julia, what would you like to leave listeners with? We've covered a lot of ground. What do you really want them to take away from this conversation? Oh, boy. Um, Olga always asks that. I'm always surprised every time. <laughs> Please, for the love of God, vote vote in your local and state elections. Run for local and state office. Uh, again, I think this is this is where democracy happens. And I know, you know, part of this is, is sort of what's happening in Vermont and, and how, what do you have to learn from, from, you know, the other states in the U.S. or, or abroad, but also recognize that what you're doing here can have an impact. Again, we have seen that, that states that try out, you know, new and interesting and innovative initiatives when it comes to elections and, ex- and expanding the franchise and being more inclusive, that that can have an effect on what people are thinking about in other states when they're also trying to, to deal with certain issues. Again, I would absolutely encourage everybody to run for local state office and always vote. And, you know, don't get, don't get too disheartened um, about the, the state of the nation and the state of our democracy. But I think it is something that we, we want to make sure is on people's radar uh, and that it's, it's actually, it's, it's pretty important that we value our voice in government and that we do have an opportunity to have voice in government and we need to really protect that. Um, and that goes the same. I mean, and that's the same for everybody in every country in the world. Um, and that, again, we're all kind of on the same page as that, uh, as that, as far as that goes. Julia, thank you. Julia Brothers, Senior Advisor of Election and Political Process at the National Democratic Institute of International Affairs. I want to thank you so much for joining the show today. If people want to learn more about the work you do, what's a good resource for them? They can go to our website, ndi.org. And we do also have a a podcast there called DemWorks. That's probably the best uh, way to sort of start exploring. Um, And if anybody is interested in kind of learning more about uh, sort of state election work uh, in the U.S. There are a lot of good organizations out there. Um, election Line does a very good roundup of electoral news um, from around the country every day. Um, that's a good source. Uh, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Emily, if people want to learn more about your work, where can they find it? I would like to share that folks, I've find a lot of faith in this by taking a long historical view and remembering that even if this year feels a little worse than last year, it's certainly much better than a hundred years ago because um, mm-hmm. all three of us can vote for instance. So <laughs> for now, just for now and for instance. Um, <laughs> So folks can go to emilykornheiser.org where you can find links to all of my social media channels, my phone number, my email address, and um, whatever updates about what I'm working on or places you can find me in the real life. Thank you. And as always, you can find us on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, Brattleboro Community Television, our Facebook page, and our web page. Hey, Emily, I think we should toast to democracy today and all the people okay. who work Ooh. to make it work. I'm going to turn my mug around. What does uh, it say? <laughs> it? it says vote for oh. mama. Oh, I love it. I love it. I guess I'll show off my, my cat mug. So <laughs> Absolutely. To democracy. <laughs> to democracy <Yes>. here. <laughs> Cheers. And thank you, everyone. I hope you have a great day.